check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Welcome one, welcome all, and thanks for coming along on this ride. It is episode number eight, and this is a toast to the A-Town, presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andre Aldrich, with definite thoughts of road warriors on my mind. The Atlanta Hawks are facing the toughest part of their season so far, embarking on a 16-day journey through the Western Conference. That begins with a weekend in L.A., a Saturday matinee against LeBron and the Lakers will tip things off, then a little rest before squaring off against Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and the Clippers on Monday night. The Hawks will wrap up their work week in the Golden State with games against the Kings and Warriors on Wednesday and Friday. All told, they'll travel more than 6,700 miles before returning back here to the A-Town. Now, the fact that the Hawks are happily taking a seven-game win streak following their Thursday night victory here in Atlanta over the Thunder is obviously a good thing. The Hawks jumped out to a 25-8 lead in the game and never led by less than 17 points in the second half. Trey Young didn't have to play one minute in the fourth quarter as the Hawks beat OKC 116-93. Boki Bogdanovich, who scored 23 points, just like Trey Young did, made it very simple after the contest, saying, we're just trying to play the right way. Well, in moving to 7-0 since interim head coach Nate McMillan took the reins, the Hawks have a seven-game win streak for the first time in over four years. Very impressive. And it simply means they won't be sneaking up on any of their Western Conference opponents on the trip. But that's just another exciting part of trying to be the absolute best at the top level of your sport. Staying focused and rising to the challenge of making better decisions than your opposition that's really what it's all about. And while LeBron and Kawhi and Steph are some of the big names they'll face, the reality of team sports is that anyone in an opposing jersey can take your lunch. Having respect for that part of the challenge is crucial too. Now, a little later, my special guest was one of those type of opponents. Not the headliner, but a man who was going to give everything he had for his side. Spent eight of his 13 years with the New York Knicks and was on his fair share of victories when his squad came to Atlanta. So we'll talk to John Starks about that, why performing well in our city is a big deal to most NBA players, and we'll also ask him what it was like being on the floor winning despite watching Dominique Wilkins put up 50 pieces on his team and his brother Gerald. And like Spud Webb a couple of weeks ago, John Starks had no scholarship offers coming out of high school, only latched onto a four-year school his final season in college, and went undrafted. Still, he played in the NBA for 13 years, was the first NBA player to ever make 200 three-pointers in a season, and finished his career with nearly 11,000 points. He was definitely a road warrior, which really meant he was an everyday warrior. First though, let's spend some more time talking 16-day road trips. And despite my love for hoops, American football, and baseball, the most popular sport in the world is soccer, which I am also a major fan of. The world held every four years is soccer's biggest event. But I want to narrow it down to the final round of 16, which begins the knockout stage. And in a sense, the knockout stage is a 16-day road trip, unless it's being held in your home country. In 1998, the World Cup was held in France for the first time, and their national team, Les Bleus, worked their way through the round of 16 to the final against the defending champions, Brazil. France 
had never won a World Cup. Brazil had the best player in the world at the time, 21-year-old Ronaldo. Interesting thing happened for Brazil on game day and not in a good way. Ronaldo suffered convulsions in his hotel room after lunch, so he was not listed on the initial starting lineup sheet. Now, remember, there was no Facebook or Twitter then, so as you can imagine, the entire press contingent lost their shit in the press box because no one knew what was going on. Well, a little over an hour before game time, a new lineup sheet comes out, and Ronaldo's name was on it. Now, even though the Brazilian players had ridden over on the team bus without any music at all, but silence because they thought they'd be without him, well, the team doctor feared that if he did not allow Ronaldo to play, well, he'd soon be the team doctor for the North Pole because there's no way he'd be allowed back in Brazil if they lost and he didn't play. Now, Ronaldo had told the coaches he wanted to play, but as you can imagine, Ronaldo was a shell of himself in that game. And one of the starring heroes for France was Zinedine Zidane, who scored two first half, first, two first half headers and leading France to a 3-0 win and the country's very first World Cup championship. They could have built a statue for him then. This, despite the fact that Zidane, or Zizou as he's called, in the second game of the first round, had stomped on an opponent from Saudi Arabia, got red carded, and received a two-match suspension. But it all eventually came up roses for him in 1998. So keep all of that in mind as we get to the climax of the 16-day road trip of what was the 2006 World Cup round of 16. Event was in Germany, and it was spectacular. Zinedine Zidane, who had continued on to consistent greatness from where we left off our story in 1998, was 34 years old and playing in his final contest. He had announced his retirement, and he had a great tournament at 34 and leading France to the final against Italy. Now, this game was everything advertised, and then some. Zidane put France up 1-0 with a penalty kick within the first eight minutes of the game. The defender who was marking him the whole game, Marco Materazzi, scored for Italy 20 minutes into the match. Now, even if you had never watched soccer before, if you are about competition and you witness this game, then you became a soccer fan. That 1-1 score sent the game into extra time and added 30 minutes of two 15-minute halves. And with 10 minutes to go, maybe the added time was just a little bit too long for the road trip for Zizou. Because for me, it's the moment that right now makes YouTube YouTube. After he and Matt Tarassi had battled up close and personal for nearly two hours, the Italian said something to the Frenchman that caused Zidane to deliver the most impactful headbutt in the history of sports right into the middle of Matarazzi's chest, sending him to the ground. Immediate red card and disqualification for Zidane, his final act ever as a player, although he still received the golden ball as the best player of that World Cup, despite the result. You see, France finished the final 10 minutes, one man down, but the game went to penalty kicks, and Italy won the cup by taking the penalty shootout 5-3. Matarazzi converted one of the penalties. Now, apparently, the clean version of what was said between the two players, well, after another collision, was this. Zizou says, if you want my shirt, I'll give it to you after the game. Matarazzi's reply was, you can keep your shirt, but I'll take your sister. So we've talked so much about focus and good intentions and good decisions. And for this one, even all these years later, I'm not here to judge. 
if you're asking me, do I want Zidane on my team? The answer is yes every day and twice on Sundays. He's going to win my team way, way, way more games than he ever loses. Now, I bring up the idea of a long road trip and adverse situations because that's what the Hawks will be facing the rest of the month. Certainly not the gravity of a World Cup Final 16, but in continuing to build our team, it's absolutely huge. And the story of headbutts is relevant because my invited guest has a little history with that also. In Game 3 of the 1993 playoff series between the Knicks and the Pacers, Reggie Miller was doing Reggie Miller things against young undrafted Knicks guard John Starks, who was in his third year with the team. Knicks and Pacers had a lot of history that decade. As things were getting extra heated between Miller and Starks that night, John's backcourt mate, Doc Rivers, told me that he went to assistant coach Jeff Van Gundy and gave him this quote, tell Riles to get John out of the game. Well, I don't know if the notorious JVG got that message to coach Pat Riley, because if he did, it wasn't fast enough. Now, Reggie swears he was going extra because John wouldn't shake his hand before game three. As for how the pride of Tulsa, Oklahoma saw it, well, we'll get to that and a whole lot more as we get to the part of the podcast where I don't do all of the talking. The Toast to the A-Town is when I bring in the invited guest. So before I do that, and he's really a man that needs no introduction, you always learn a little bit about me or a little bit more about me on each and one of these episodes. And, you know, for six or seven years of my life growing up in Southern Cal, I was, uh, I worked at the, uh, I worked on the naval base as a box boy at the uh, commissary store there. And I, I thought that my skills there as a bagger, boxer, and all that stuff, um, I continued that for a couple of years into my college career. And to get into broadcasting through that is no big deal. But you would never expect someone who has some experience at the Piggly Wiggly in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to work his way into a 13-year NBA career and have a very successful run as one of the most exciting players in the history of New York Knickerbockers. So with that thought in mind, uh, we bring in now, and I say hello to my good friend and my guest, uh, John Starks, who really needs no introduction. John, thanks for joining us here on the Toast to the A-Town. You're welcome. You're welcome. It wasn't a Piggly Wiggly. Now, that's, that's a Southern thing. Now, see, help me. And again, <laughs> the thing safe, is, we, it was, we, it we keep it. Okay, we keep it honest here, and and I can make mistakes. So, you know, we like Piggly Wiggly's down. So, you were a Safeway employee. Yes, 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 and Safeway. Did you, have, did you have the skills that I'm talking about that I had? Like, you, did you think your, your bagging game was up pretty good? Oh, bagging game was was perfect. That's why I moved up very quickly to checker and soccer. <laughs> so, so, John, let's, let's talk a, a little bit about, about, about your journey. I'm going to get to some of the battles you had down here in Atlanta with the, with the Hawks, too. But just to touch on a little bit. You ended up at Oklahoma State uh, with Leonard Hamilton there. Was there any point during that journey that you thought your NBA dream was too big? Uh, you know, really, I wasn't even thinking about the NBA at that time. Uh, so it's probably what helped me uh, because it wasn't on my mind because, um, like you said, I really wasn't highly recruited and I wasn't mm -hmm. on the radar. So that was furthest from my mind. It wasn't until uh, after my second junior college, when I got into my third junior college, uh, uh, and a coach by the name of uh, Ken Tricky uh, saw the potential uh, that I can uh, play at the next level. He really encouraged me uh, because he coached a couple of guys that played in the NBA. He thought I was just as good, if not better, than those guys. And so 
that gave me some uh, added motivation along with playing during the summer uh, in a summer league down in uh, Tulsa, playing against some uh, NBA players that used to come down from Texas and play in the Pigs pop-off, uh, which was uh, kind of like a pro-am uh, tournament. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was always voted on the all-star team alongside these these guys. So that uh, coupled with what Coach Tricky uh, uh, told me really gave me a lot of inspiration that I could play at the next level. Okay, so John, John, but you you got a taste with the Warriors. What was it like for you, and what were your thoughts after you you're there? You play with the Warriors for a year, but then you you're cut and you're not on a team for a year. What was your mindset? Well, uh, I wasn't too much worried about being cut uh, from the Warriors. Uh, I kind of looked at it as a, uh, a year of growth and a year that I needed to work on certain aspects of my game uh, that first year. And uh, just got a taste of the NBA playing against, you know, obviously the best in the world uh, and uh, playing on a very good team at that time. Uh, I was there with Mitch Richmond, Chris Mullen, uh, Manu Bowl, uh, mm -hmm. Ralph Sampson, uh, Larry Smith, Mr. Me, uh, Rod Higgins, uh, Winston Garland, who uh -huh. now his son is playing in the NBA. <laughs> so I, I got a real good taste of what the NBA life was about. And, uh, you know, watching players, you know, sitting on the bench and uh, watching guys uh, uh, play out there on the court. So uh, I knew that I needed, you know, some more work on my game. Uh, but I also knew that there was other teams that was interested in me, even before I got to the Warriors playing mm -hmm. with the San Antonio Spurs during the summer. Mm -hmm. So many teams was coming up to me asking me who, who was my agent. So uh, I wasn't, you know, dejected when I got cut. So I was looking forward to the next chapter and what team I was going to go to. It was just, I caught an unfortunate break right before veteran camp because I actually I was supposed to go uh, to Indiana veteran camp. So I, I would, would have been playing alongside Reggie Miller at that time. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how things work out for the good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, I ended up turning turn my ankle up, and so I couldn't <laughs> in any veteran camp. So uh, I got stuck in the CBA for a year. John, let's. Uh, it's it's interesting. You know, uh, Spud Webb was a guest a couple of weeks ago here, and and Dominique told me that in a preseason game, Spud went up and dunked on Kareem, and even the guys on the Hawks were like, "Oh my God, no, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Nobody does that." He's going to make our team. And I bring that up because you get to the Knicks. You're in the Knicks camp. It's the final practice of the Knicks camp your first year there. You have no idea you're about to get cut. And my understanding is the last play of the scrimmage, you go and try to yoke one on Patrick Ewing. <laughs> and big fella has told me his own words that he blocked your shot, but also twisted your knee up, which got you on the injured list. Is that a true story? It is a true story. Patrick, I always say that he's my savior, so. <laughs> but I, I was talking to Jeff, um, and uh, he told me that uh, that they wasn't going to cut me, but you know how that goes when they say something like that. So I, I knew coming into that last practice that I, I needed to, uh, you know, continue to impress them. I had a great veteran camp, and so I, I felt that I wasn't going to be cut, but you never know. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and sometimes it's just a numbers game and you're the odd man out. And so I knew I needed to go in and impress them in that last day. So I treated it like it was a playoff game. 
So I don't think I missed a shot that whole practice and saw an opportunity to really impress him. Well, I stole the ball and Patrick was coming down on my left side and I went up to dunk on him. And I, I forgot he was seven foot, could jump at the time. <laughs> and uh, he caught my dunk and I came down and twist my knee. He felt bad because he thought he had tore my knee up, but mm -hmm. it was like a blessing in disguise because it kept me, uh, they had to put me on the IR. And at that time, I didn't, didn't know that if you go on the uh, injury reserve list, they couldn't cut you. Mm -hmm. And so, and that took probably the pressure off of them too. Uh, right. To make that decision. So they probably was happy that it, it worked out that way. Let's move ahead a little bit, John. And uh, so I'm going to talk about your, your first year on the Knicks and coming down here to Atlanta. And again, your first year, you're coming off the bench. Your first game in Atlanta you came off the bench, you had 19 points, uh, four assists, four rebounds, a couple of steals, and a double overtime win for the Knicks. How did that feel? That feel great because uh, it was coming off the game that I played against Chicago. It was my first game back. And uh, I think it was in December, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But it was my first game back uh, mm -hmm. playing – with the Knicks and uh, I had a good game against Chicago. So I felt good. And coming down to Atlanta, everybody want to play well down in Atlanta, as you know. So, uh, you know, it, it was fun playing and competing against those guys and uh, to be able to come down there and, and to be able to get a win mm -hmm. and, uh, and being instrumental in the success uh, uh, at that time was, uh, was great. What was it like and the freak that Dominique Wilkins was because in that game, he gets 52. I mean, you're about to yeah. win, and, and the Knicks yeah. are, and, and Dominique's going at his brother. Gerald's on your team at that point. He goes yeah. at his brother as hard as any other human. But still, he gets 52 in a loss like it's nothing. Yeah. No, I, I was impressed because, you know, I, I grew up watching Dominique, the human highlight uh, film. And uh, just to be able to say I was on the same court, uh, with him and watching him do what he was doing, you know, he was virtually unstoppable that particular game right there. And I, and I saw that, you know, whenever you play against your brother, you want to, you want to go at him. Cause I know I was me playing against my brothers growing, growing up. So you, you, especially you, the older brother. So he really want to go at him and, and teach mm -hmm. him a lesson. So uh, he was just unstoppable. He was amazing. And, you know, he had this unorthodox shot that he used to take, you know, like he is mind-boggling on the shots that he used to make out there on the court because you don't see nobody shooting it the way he shoots the ball. And, uh, and his moves and how he goes to the basket was amazing. So he was a special player. Dominique is, is an incredible individual. John, you're in the starting lineup. And you end up in that game with 18 points, eight rebounds, I'm sorry, eight assists, excuse me, six rebounds, a couple of steals. Uh, were you showing up for family? Was your sister living here then? I mean, come on, man. <laughs> uh, no, man, I told you Atlanta is just a special place to play. It's like, you know, uh, one of those cities that you just feel comfortable in. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's ATL, man. Mm -hmm. What can you say? You know, you just want to go out there and perform. Uh, you know, the uh, the crowd is going to look like you, the mm -hmm. <laughs> majority mm -hmm. of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, you want to go out there and put on a show. And so, uh, 
you know, it's just one of those cities, just like Cleveland. Mm-hmm. You know, I always shot the ball and played well in Cleveland. Uh, I guess that might have been uh, Oak's mother's home cooking. So right. <laughs> that probably helped us too. So, but no, it, it was just a special place to play. Uh, you know, uh, the city itself is just an incredible city. And, um, you know, we always look forward to going down there. Plus, you're playing against a very, very good team at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hawks was one of the upper echelon teams. And so we knew that we had to bring our games. And whenever you're going up against a great player like Dominique, you know, you want to perform. John, uh, when I talk to your teammates, and you know I have, so uh, <laughs> when I talk to Patrick or I talk to Allen Houston um, or, or, or Doc Rivers, and they say <laughs> that, Nobody. They don't talk about three junior colleges or or you being undrafted or or any of that other stuff. All of them say nobody wanted to win a basketball game every night more than our teammate John Starks. So what was it about your mindset that had you like that, man, to to know that was the bar for you? Man, I hated to lose. <laughs> As you know, I, I don't care what I'm doing. If I'm in competition, I hate to lose no matter what. And you know, I think that was just instilled in me as a young uh, young man growing up by my older brothers and because mm-hmm. we used to battle all the time. And they used to tease me when they used to beat me and they used to have me crying at a young age. And so I always had that, that hatred for losing no matter what I do. And so I, I'm just a very competitive person like that. So I, I think that's where that comes from. You know, whenever we take the court, I remember when I was an all-star, in 94 and we went to Minnesota and you know how those games can be just, you know, go out here and play and, mm-hmm. you know, you don't worry about winning or losing. And I told them, they, you know, asked everybody to speak and I, I stood up and say, listen here, this may be my last and only all-star game and I want to win, period. I said, I know y'all go out here and just to have fun, but we're going to come out here to win. And we went out, <laughs> we went out and won. So that, that just inside of me, I, I just hate to lose even to this day. I understand that. And, you know, for so on the uh, part of this uh, uh, podcast that you haven't heard when I'm running my mouth all by myself and and, and we just talked about winners and, and some of the all time greats. And, uh, you know, I'm a big soccer fan. So we talked a little bit about Zinedine Zidane, one of the greatest players ever. And, of course, in playing in the World Cup had one of the biggest moments when uh, there were some things said that he couldn't put up with at that moment. And just as a man, he felt he had to do. You already brought up Reggie Miller's name. And and when I talk about Doc Rivers, and Doc says that you can watch his kids, you're one of the best human beings on earth, but John also is a Tasmanian devil when it comes to <laughs> games. So when we go back to game three of that series in 1993, John, uh, the other part about the game that's different now is like, sure, is there physicality that's the same, but the elbow situation, and I'm not saying this because I'm your friend, because I know Reggie too. And huh. Reggie was getting away with some extra elbows that night and some extra and some extra. And at that point, John Starks had an answer for him, and it was a hit but hurt around the world. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was just talking about this earlier. And, um, you know, back then, as a, a unknown player, in, in a sense, uh, and a guy, when you come into the league, respect wasn't given, you right. know, unlike today. You know, when guys come in, they have all the hoopla coming into the league. You know, they, they pretty much get respect no matter who it is. And um, But back then, you know, 
but you had to earn your respect. And that's just the way the league was. It's just like going to the park and nobody know who you are. And, you know, and you got to show that you can play in order to get your respect out there. And uh, Reggie was just one of those players. You know, he was <laughs> he didn't respect you until you made him respect you. And uh, mm -hmm. I always say that play needed to happen uh, because if I let him get away with something like that, he will own me for the rest of my career. And uh, after that particular play, uh, I had no more problems out of Reggie for the rest of my career. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so as a player, sometimes you have to stand up for yourself and you have to mm -hmm. go out there and get your – you literally had to fight your way into this league because these guys – the money wasn't that great like it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, so – Everybody is all kind to one another. Back then, you know, you was fighting to, to survive mm -hmm. and feed your family and what have you. So no one was given an inch back then. So, uh, but that's just the way the league was. And uh, so that needed to happen. So me and Reggie, we cool after that. <laughs> <laughs> so John, during my seven years of living in New York, you know, I witnessed a lot of this firsthand, the love that Knicks fans have for you of course there's a signature dunk that you have against the chicago bulls and uh one of the other parts of, of your life going back over 25 years is the john starks foundation uh you have three-point scholarship winners that have been going to schools all over america thanks in a big part to your foundation why was that important to you to start that in 1994 and remains a big part of your life to this day uh you know i just wanted to give back in some kind of way um and my agent came to me and asked me, you know, you know, you're doing very well now and, mm -hmm. you know, you should think about, you know, ways to give back. Uh, I was under Lee Steinberg, as you know, Lee was big, big on that. And then so he asked me, he said, you know, what you want to do? You know, do you want to be a part of uh, another um, foundation or what have you? I said, well, I just start my own. And he said, well, what you want to do? And I thought about it, and I was looking at, you know, what I had to go through when I came out of high school and, and you know, the trials and tribulations of trying to go to college, how hard it was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mother and grandmother, they didn't have the money to send me to college, right. so I had to go the traditional route. Uh, I only played one year of high school basketball pretty much was my junior year. A couple of games until uh, my senior year, I ended up quitting the team uh, for certain reasons. And so I really wasn't recruited. So I had to go the traditional route that the majority of, you know, high school students have to do, look for scholarship money and, and mm -hmm. try to apply for this, grants and all of that. And I know how difficult that process was. And uh, so I said, you know what, let me, you know, start this foundation with the premise of, raising money to give to uh, high school graduating seniors and, and give them an opportunity to go to school. And so, you know, we put it together in 94. Uh, we started off with, uh, you know, events. Then we eventually we graduated into uh, having a golf uh, tournament, mm -hmm. which is our main uh, fundraising event. Right. And we've been going strong ever since. You know, we've been put an uh, incredible amount of kids, helped them, I should say, uh, go to school and and, and start trying to uh, plan for their future. So it's been very rewarding in that aspect. You know, John, for you, and again, uh, 
undrafted, nearly 900 games played. All of that just is un unbelievable. Uh, I want to take you to our current Hawks and someone who's on obviously a different journey in, in Trey Young, but still from your state even though he's Sooner and you're Cowboy and, and, and you're Tulsa and he's Norman. But uh, what do you see in, in Trey Young and especially coming the way that he does as a high drafted guy, well known from a, you know, a younger age and stuff, but still once you get between the lines, that doesn't, doesn't matter. What do you see in his game? No, he, he's a special player. You know what I mean? You think about it, uh, had a lot of pressure on him, you know, because they were swapped. He was swapped for Luka Doncic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously Doncic took off while he was kind of like mm -hmm. uh, trying to get his footing in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And eventually he he got it and he got it very, very well. You know what I mean? He just started to like light this league up. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a competitive young man. You know what I mean? I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. The intensity in his eyes, the way uh, he moves out there on the court. Um, you know, to take on that pressure of right. coming to a team and being the key guy is a very hard thing, especially a young player like him. You know, he's not a big guy. Right. And, I, but right. his attitude and his tenacity out there on the court makes him a seven-footer. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Uh, he goes out there and plays the game the way it's supposed to be played, you know, from that point guard position. Uh, obviously, we know he can shoot the crap out the basketball, but his leadership skills on how he keeps everybody involved uh, out there on the court. Uh, you know, as a coach, you always want to coach out there on the court. You know, you look at all the great ones like the Jason Kidds, the Magic Johnsons, uh, Isaiah Thomas, those guys. They can do it all, but they also was a coach out there on the court. And I have that same feeling about him as a player, you know what I mean? So I respect Trey and, and, and the pressure that was put upon him. He could easily fell to the wayside and right. say it's too much, but he took it on and came out of it, you know, like a, a shiny new penny, you know what I mean? He's doing his thing and uh, he's leading that team. One other thing I have to ask you about, John, you know, um, And like just like you, but um, Spud could be on here all day talking about his Dallas Cowboys when we go on talk yeah. about NFL. And I wouldn't allow him to do that here on the podcast. You know, I can run my mouth forever. But yeah. uh, as big of a Dallas Cowboy fan as, as as Spud Webb is, I don't think I've ever met a bigger Pittsburgh Steelers than John. <laughs> hey, Steeler Nation, you know how I roll. <laughs> no, you know. It's <laughs> That team right there, I, I go back all the way back in the 70s, you know what I mean? And how I lucked up, I basically lucked up be, becoming a Steeler fan because I wanted to be a Raider and a Cowboy fan, but my two older brothers, one was a Raider fan and one was a Cowboy fan, so they wouldn't let me be <laughs> either one of those. And so I watched Pittsburgh beat the crap out of Dallas. And so I said, well, that's my team. And who had the most success? <laughs> oh, that's how I became a, a Steeler fan. But I also was love football in a sense. I always wanted to be a football player, wide receiver. And obviously we had two of the greatest in Lynn Swan and John Starworth. And uh, those guys I wanted to be like. And so 
but then we had obviously a great defense, the Steel Curtain. Yes, sir. And, uh, and a hell of a quarterback. He don't get talked about it enough. And Terry Bradshaw. And, uh, you know, and our running back, you know, the man, uh, Franco Harris. So, and Rocky Bly. I can't forget about Rocky Bly. I can go on and on. Donnie Shell. You know what I didn't re- uh, uh, realize, but Mel Blunt, I didn't realize yes. how big he was. You know, he's legit yes, six four corner. Yes, sir. You know what I mean? Yes, he would have made a killing in today's game because they need corners oh. this time. But he, mm-hmm. he, but he used to talk about how physical the game was back then from a corner standpoint. And, and you know this watching the game back then is that you can ride the receivers. You can't yes, do sir. that no more. You know what I mean? And it's like the hand check. You, you could to, yes. used to hand check back in the day. And That's the only, you can't do the only no thing more. I would love, the only, the only rule I wish was right now, the hand check needs to be there. Oh, it, it, it needs to be, you know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, the way they can handle the basketball, if you can't put your hands on them, there's no way you can guard anybody. You right. know what I mean? You couldn't guard mm-hmm. nobody nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have a hard time, you know, guarding these guys. I can imagine not putting my hands on Michael Jordan and Ooh. trying to guard him without touching them. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. uh, it's virtually impossible to guard these guys. That's why they can – play with the ball the way they play with the ball. But back then, mm-hmm. you really couldn't play with the ball. You had to make your move and get to where you're going to get to. John, I know you are as proud right now. And again, we're March Madness is just getting started. You talk about coaches on the floor, and, and, and always that tends to be a point guard. And uh, Herb Williams was a good friend of yours, and, and I know respect you have for Herb and, and knowing him. But big guys don't get the credit for, for having that ability to be coaches. So – what Patrick Ewing is doing at Georgetown this year uh, might make you as proud as anything he's done forever, I, I would imagine. No question. You know, Big Fella is really doing this thing. He's really showing his coaching skills, which we already knew he had coaching skills. And, you know, learning underneath John Thompson and all the mm-hmm. great coaches he played for. And, yes, sir. And uh, coaches that uh, when he was in the NBA as an assistant for 15 years that mm-hmm. he coached under. You know, mm-hmm. I always had that inside of him. And, you know, people always talk about big guys, really don't have personalities. But Patrick has, you know, you've been around Patrick. He has a big personality. Absolutely. And he can communicate very well. And he may be in a boisterous way, <laughs> but he gets the point across. I see a little John Thompson in, in, in him in, in that way, but really knows the game. Uh you know, I told him you know, at his first or second year, you know, you need to, like, take it down a little bit. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yes. He listened. You know what I mean? You see him a little bit more relaxed on that sideline now. His first couple of years, he was all up in these guys. And But yes, I think, you know, as a great player, you, you want these guys to be just as good as you. And sometimes as a great player, you, you have to take a step back. And everybody can't reach that pinnacle, you know what I mean, of being great. But they can reach – that pinnacle of being very good and very solid as a, as a basketball player. And I, I think he really took a step back and looked at that. You see him now, he's more relaxed on that sideline yes. and yes. guys are responding to him very well. You know, I was very fortunate to go to the Big East tournament this year and the championship game and his team just played outstanding basketball. I mean, lockdown defense and Creighton is a very good Defensive, uh, you know, offensive team, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And to lock them guys up showed a lot about 
you know, Patrick getting the most out of his his players, you know, mm-hmm. because to be honest with you, look at his team, you wouldn't say they are jugg- juggernauts, you know what I mean? They are uh, gritty, get after it, right. you know, on right. the defensive end of the court and just solid on the basket, on the offensive side of the uh, of the ball. And so, um, you know, I was very proud of him. You know, he, he was ecstatic to be able to, you know, win the Big East and obviously being a former player to be able to win it as a player now, win it as a coach is just amazing. I didn't realize that's the first time in history that it ever happened. So that that, that was uh, amazing. But I just wish them all the best. I know uh, going into this tournament, they got their hands, you know, uh, cut out for him. So they, they, it's very, very, very fun to watch his team play because they get out of it. John, it's all about showing up and being ready to go and being ready to battle each and every time. And we really appreciate you spending some time with us here on a toast to the A-Town. And we wish nothing but the best. And as you continue to reach out to the youngsters and, and help the youth from coast to coast in this country, man, you know, I got nothing but love for you, man. And uh, hey, best of luck. And I will talk to you again soon. I appreciate it, Dre. All the best to you, bro. All right. Thank you very much. And again, that's John Starks. Really don't need to add very much to that. Again, uh, for a generation of fans, one of the all-time best Knicks. And again, still affiliated with the uh, 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 Knicks uh, in, in New York. And, you know, he can't walk down the street in, in, in New York City at all. But uh, again, undrafted, 13 years, nearly 11,000 points, playoff moments, big moments and an even better human being. So that's going to wrap up this edition of A Toast to the A-Town presented to you by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Andre Aldridge. Thank you very much. And make sure you click that subscribe button and I will see you next time.